Hi, listener, this is From Ideology to Unity, a spiritual journey where we let go of ego and ideological doctrine in favour of meaning, purpose and unity as a whole. Today, I'm interviewing Carol Howe. Carol Howe is a best-selling author, spiritual coach and 40-year master teacher. Most notably, in my opinion, she was the biographer for Bill Fetford, the co-scribe of A Course in Miracles. A Course in Miracles is a fantastic text, which is a channeling of the Christ consciousness, an educational program where the student undergoes a process of internalizing a thought system, which helps them to assert, accept even, into their minds and extend it to others, healing miracles. There's a lot to it, of course, but essentially it could be described as a way to reprogram the mind towards unconditional love. Hi, Carol. How are you doing? That sounds great. <laughs> so, where do I start? I suppose I could ask you, what is God? Uh, well, God is a word, of course, it's an old testament, it's a Christian word that unfortunately in most people's minds means a person. In other words, when you name something, it tends to be you've named a thing. What it really is, is uh, conscious awareness, unconditional love. In other words, it's not a thing or a person. It's, we will call it presence. Presence of love, which by the way, is what everybody is. Is it an energy? You could call it an energy, you can call it a presence. It's beyond what the intellect can either grasp or describe. So we use words to try to point to what can never be taken in by the intellectual mind, but can be experienced. That's the key right. is to experience it. So we can signpost to where it is and that's, and that enables people the opportunity to find, find it and experience it. Well, yes. And so therefore, a question that anybody who's paying attention to that would say is, well, okay, then what is the process? What do I have to do? <laughs> that all sounds great. You know, and, and I've had some experiences. And let me tell you, there's no way in the world they can be described. All I can say is you want to have that experience. So, there, so what can be presented to the intellectual mind is what are some of the basic steps we have to take to open ourselves to that, the possibility, which is our birthright of experiencing what we actually are. Yeah, it's um, vital to life, I suppose. Yes. So how does the mind work? Well, how the mind works is probably not the question that I would prefer to answer. It would be more like, let me do just a little background with that. At any given moment, our thinking process, which of course is the activity of the mind, so to speak, is there's always a binary choice going on. I am always at any moment involved in the 
protection, promotion of the sense of separate self. And I use sense of separate self because the idea of a separate self is a story. It's a construct. It doesn't have actual reality or in any given moment, I am truly desiring to be helpful, whatever helpful looks like in that moment. And I want to follow intuition, guidance, the, the a representative, so to speak, of what cannot be described, but which is right here available to us. So at every single moment of every day, we're always coming down on the side, so to speak, of whatever we have decided is most important. The problem, of course, is because of our earliest programming, we think legitimately that the most important thing is the protection and promotion of my body, personality, ego self, because that's what I think I am. So nobody's right. faulted for that. It's just that we need to go, hey, we need to examine to see if that's true or not. And it actually isn't. So that the, the, the beginning to undo some of the mythology that we've all been taught and not in any sort of a malicious way. Nobody wakes up and says, I want to do everything possible to fool the world. It's just that it's handed down from one generation to the next. There's a thunderstorm. We know we're pre-hurricane here at the moment. So in any event, so what we want to be clear about is that there's not blame about any of this. This is simply now we have to go when when people's lives aren't working out well, they tend to go, finally, if they're down on their knees, is there a better way to live than this? Or is there something about life that I don't know about? So it's like, often it's when life doesn't work out the way you want it to, become those fertile grounds for going, I might be open to hearing something new. If we're never open to hearing something new, then good luck. <laughs> so what leads to people being open to spirituality? They need to be open to um, is there more to life than what I'm aware of, which is trying to just make it in the physical world? Is there more to me that I'm aware of? I, from, from the time I was a little girl, before I even started to go to school, I knew there's something missing here. There's something not right here. There's something, and that's not because my childhood was particularly difficult. I mean, it had the same set of issues that kind of every garden variety family has, but it was an inner knowing there's something else going on and I'm going to find out what it is. So, so I've been on this path, shall we say, literally my whole life. And I'm very happy to say I've discovered lots of important stuff along the way. And my life is dedicated not to try to convince somebody's mind who goes, you know, no, 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 the world is real. I'm a person. I don't want to hear anything else. It's like, good. You just follow along that path as long as you want to. But for those who come to a breaking point, 
And sometimes it's an illness. Sometimes it's a death of somebody. Sometimes it's a bankruptcy. In other words, it can be a great problem in life that they've never had to deal with before. Or it can be people like me who just are haunted by the idea there's more to life than this. So whatever the means that gets us to say, is there something else? Is there something I don't know about where I could be even happier and safer and more peaceful and more trusting in life? Most people don't trust their own presence. Okay. Um, excuse me for a sec, because um, my cat is anxious to come in. I, I won't stop the interview, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's got questions, but I'm not really sure how to translate them. Okay, so, um, so from as a biographer, um, what did you, as you, well, from your impression, what was it like for Bill and Helen? actually well, it, going through the process of writing it? It was... Describing. It was hell. It was horrible. <laughs> it was like, but they, it, it, shall we say, their destiny brought them together. Bill was head of a big department at Columbia University, although he was a young man for the gravity of the positions mm -hmm. that he held. And they had been given a grant to do some research on early childhood development. And it was an area that was a bit outside his area of expertise. And so he told a colleague, we're gonna to have to hire somebody who is an expert in this field. And this guy goes, oh, I, I know who that would be. So he calls Helen Shuckman, who's 14 years Bill's senior who was, had finished her um, academic work and she was casting about for a job. And he calls her and said, stop looking anywhere else and call Bill Thetford. So she does, she's hired. And um, without spending a lot of our time on all, all of the steps that happened in between, she started, she was obviously very kind of psychically talented and she began kind of having dreams and almost hearing voices and so on. And in October of 1965, she's at home with her husband, a lovely man who owns a bookstore in New York City. And the kind of inner voice, she always tried to describe it as like an inner dictation. And she said, the voice said, please take notes. This is a course in miracles. And she promptly freaked out because she, she was... Right by everyone's account, a very difficult person. And she did tend to freak out about a bunch of stuff. Although when she was practicing her craft, she was a therapist herself. So when she was actually focused on being there for other people, she was brilliantly good at what she did. She listened, she was very kind to them. But when it moved into areas like this that pre presented a threat to her, she kind of fell apart. So on that October night, she called Bill and said, I just heard this voice. What should I do? And he said, take notes. And she said, but what if it's crazy? She was a grammarian. She was worried about whether the commas would show up in the right place or not. And she said, but what if it's crazy? And he said, 
You just take notes, do not read it. Bring it in the next morning and we'll lock the door, pull down the shades, we'll look at it. And if it's insane, if it's stupid, it's crazy, we'll throw it away and nobody will ever know. Well, what she got that first day was the introduction to the text, which is stunning. When I, I first was acquainted with the course myself in 1977, and someone had sent us a, a subscription to a magazine as a house present, and the first edition that came had the very first article that was ever written about the course in it, hardly a coincidence. And it, it was an extensive article that included that introduction to the text. And when I read it, now, after all, I had been decades into my own reading and searching and doing whatever all was available. I was just struck. I thought, this is it. So I immediately ordered the books. They were, they were in a three volume set. And I do remember the day when they were delivered and I held those books before I even opened them. And I was kind of overcome with the thought, my search is finally over. Whatever it was I'd been looking for since I was five years old, whatever is in this, this set of books is it. And for me, I was right. What's so then, about? That, that was the end of the search and the beginning of a meaningful practice and being led into what I would consider an expansive direction. Sounds like it. What struck you most about that introduction? Um, there, and this was fascinating because I've heard a lot of people use these identical words. I could, and if you haven't had this experience, this isn't gonna make any sense. It's like, I could feel the truth and the power kind of rising up out of the words. And when I, when I got the material and would start to read it, but what fascinates me is over the years, as I say, I'm now in my 44th year, I have spoken with tens of thousands of people. I've done workshops everywhere in many places in the world and counseling. And I mean, I can't tell you the number of people I've spoken with or gotten emails from. And uh, such a fascinating number of people use those same words. I could feel that they literally, I could, they would say, I could feel the truth coming up through the word. So that's an experience that you can point to with words, but you have to have the experience to know what it means. Not everybody has that experience, but a lot of people do. Sounds familiar. Yeah, I, I feel like there are a few texts that might get that effect. So what is at the core foundation of A Course in Miracles? The core foundation is, as Bill discovered very quickly, it is ancient wisdom for the modern world. He recognized it immediately, as you might say, the Western, the Western version of Advaita Vedanta. It is a teaching of non-duality that says the reality is there's only oneness. And it's literally the, the kind of creations of the mind that makes it appear that's the key word, 
that there are separate people and separate things and separate everything in the world, but that that is not actually the fact. And you go, well, how do you jump from thinking that's a fact to experiencing oneness? That seems like quite a leap. Well, of course it's a leap. So the, the, the course has a text which supplies all of the philosophical background, so to speak. So it is a teaching of non-duality. It says the apparent separation between apparent objects is only that, apparent. It's an objectification by the mind, but it has not altered the oneness of anything at all. And so it is a process. So the text is the philosophical underpinning. The workbook is where the, um, is where, in my opinion, one really needs to start out because its purpose is literally reprogramming your brain, reprogramming all of the things that were not in any sort of an evil way, but in an uninformed way, we were all inculcated. It's just like back in Portugal in the 14th century, people were positive. The earth was flat. And so their lives were circumscribed by certainty. They'd go, well, look, you can see the ocean comes to an end and there's sky. Of course, the world is flat and nobody in their right mind would go out there. So you might say that our normal beliefs and their very restrictive beliefs, we could just put in the category of flat earth thinking. In other words, it's not evil, it's not awful, it's just inaccurate. <laughs> so that the, the lessons are literally about reprogramming. So now we're talking at the time and space level, not at a grand metaphysical level. And in my early days, after I taught school a few years, I was a systems engineer with IBM. And so I know a whole lot about programming and debugging the logic and reprogramming and so on and so forth. And these lessons are designed to replace fear-driven, small, limiting, guilt-driven beliefs about ourselves with a more and more and more and more accurate picture. It's still a picture, but we're he heading now in the right direction. Yeah. And as, you, and as you do that, your outer circumstances and the way you feel change right along with it. It's not like you change the programming in your brain and everything remains the same. The whole point is you change the programming in your brain and you feel differently. Um, new opportunities show up, people are friendlier. In other words, your world continues to in every minute way reflect upgraded programming. And it seems to be the as above, so below, but also as within, so without concept in hermetics. Yes. Experienced as you read it. That's amazing. Yeah, yes. And, and it's not just experienced as you read it. And people have had certainly interesting experiences, but its core fundamental um, message to us is we are convinced of our own guilt. We're convinced that we have somehow ruined ourselves, destroyed ourselves, 
been hurtful to ourselves and others, of course. And much of that guilt resides in the unconscious mind where we don't necessarily know it's operative, but it is. Now, the reason why this is incredibly important is that guilt and punishment are a package deal. Every bit of guilt about yourself or anybody else, because everybody else is just your own projected guilt that you subscribe to is like being down on your knees, praying for your life not to work out, to be punished for things to be unfortunate in some way. And if you don't know that that intimate connection exists, and if you don't know how to begin to locate what that guilt is so you can let it go, well, then you're in a very compromised position. So this mm. information is of critical importance. And it says, well, and by the way, one of the ways that you can begin to put your hands around, so to speak, what you feel guilty about, even if you're not aware of feeling guilty about, is through your relationships. Because you will see in others the specifics of what you blame yourself for. And that's projection, which is um, one of the key things talked yeah. about by Christ in the text. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And and this is just, if you keep those two things in mind, there's a, there's a phrase that course students will often refer to in the latter part of the text that talks about the tiny mad idea at which we remembered not to laugh. And the tiny mad idea is that we ourselves are inherently destroyers, that we've ruined ourselves, that we've somehow, in some way we don't know. And if you said that to a collection of people, they would go, I don't feel like that. I'm, you know, maybe I've done a few things wrong. That was me too in the beginning. <laughs> it's like, I, I, that didn't, that didn't register with me, you know, some of the talk about feeling guilty. I might go, oh, well, I might have done a few things wrong, but I had an experience actually about a year before the course came into my life. And I had no idea at that point. I had two little boys. I had a lovely house, a lovely husband, nice friends, no financial problems. Like my life was good. And I woke up one morning sobbing, like, I don't just wake up sobbing. As I say, I, I had a more than satisfactory life. I was content. And this goes on and on. And the little boys are like, they're like three and fives, like, mommy, mommy, are you okay? It's like, yikes, I don't know if I'm okay or not, because I can't stop. I've never been in a situation before where there was such sorrow pouring forth that I couldn't stop it. This goes on, not just for that day, on and on. I, I called my two best psychiatrist friends who were good friends of mine. They knew I was as stable a person they'd ever met. They had no idea what was happening to me. So that was not helpful. And so this goes off and on. I thought, I, I guess my life is ruined. We had to cancel social events. Always before, if I was upset, I could put on a happy face, not with this. Two months later, approximately, 
I came home one Saturday morning after running an errand. My husband is there with the two little happy boys. And I walk in with the feeling that I've just returned from the funeral of burying one of my children. Now, this is the weirdest disconnect. Here are my children. They're just fine. And I am sobbing over the death of a child. Well, a few minutes later, kind of in my mind's eye, I look down and there's a little dead girl about two and a half years old. And it's like, that's me. I realized at that moment that this two months of gr grief, the inexplicable grief was over some fear, some guilt that I didn't know I carried about destroying myself. And there were a few little aftershocks after that weekend. Monday morning, I wake up, I'm fine, I'm clear, everything's good. It never happened again. Now, who knew at that point that a year later, the course would come along, I would become a major exponent of it. I needed to have that experience before I ever read anything about we carry this deep grief and fear that we're destroyers. Do you see how that was for my life purpose essential that I have the experience before I ever read about such a thing as that experience? A question about it. Yeah. Um, do you think perhaps the belief in being a destroyer uh, comes from or that having destroyed oneself comes from the incarnation birth process itself. Yes, if, if we're now going to kind of jump into the bigger metaphysical picture, our remaining guilt, see, any guilt we carry is fundamentally about I'm a ruiner of myself, of other people, of other situations, and so on. And now we're going to expand out to the metaphysics. We come into a physical incarnation, shall we say, to keep letting go of this and letting go of this and letting go of this. So you might say we come in with a script. We come in as the producer director. We come into the family, the country, the century, the social status, the religion, the whatever it is that's going to be the perfect crucible, if you will, for me to start out with what almost nobody realizes is discovering and releasing guilt, discovering more of this and releasing it. The problem is, is that although that's the big picture plan, without material like this, people will subscribe to what the world believes, which is um, other people or other situations cause my difficulties and I'm sort of the victim of them and they're the villains and they're the guilty ones. And so I'm busy exporting my guilt everywhere, not realizing like, hey, everybody, that's not what this is for. This whole process and the course is magnificent at this. It's to help us see and I, I have processes that I lead people through all the time in counseling sessions of, you know, finding that person that drives them crazy. And what is it you don't like about them? 
Then we start the, uh, the look, which doesn't take a lot of, uh, this is done easily, where people can go, yeah, I, yes, I've done that too. And you know, in other words, kind of unearthing this and then the process of letting it go. And that's not something you just snap your fingers and do, but, but we discover what we hold against ourselves and others because of our projection through our relationships. Without our relationships, it would just possibly stay buried like the nine-tenths of an iceberg that you can't ever get to. So relationships come to our rescue, especially the people who drive us crazy. So they're like signposts to what's going inside, but outside. Yes. yes. And they tell you how you're projecting. They, they are the, I call them, they're either the messengers, they're the triggers, because if you can think of it as up here, I've got my uh, conscious mind with whatever I know in it. Below it, I have my another big circle with my unconscious mind, and I have no idea what's there. And I can't go directly from my conscious mind to my unconscious mind. But along comes a person. It can be a situation, but underneath the situation, there's going to be a person there somewhere. Now, my conscious mind can see the behavior that's being actually projected onto that person, except we don't know that yet. And that person's behavior turns out to be perfect mirror of exactly what I blame myself for. So this is the indirect through another person's behavior methodology because I don't have any other method because I can't go directly into my own unconscious mind where so much of this resides. So yeah. healing through relationships is critical. When you've been talking, I had this image in my mind of, I suppose you could say it's a Gnostic cross. So it's just a, a symmetrical cross with a circle around it. And God the Father is above us. Um, well, I suppose it's God the Father, us, and then the subconscious. But if you go, it's kind of like the outer circle is the outside. and a dot in the middle was like us, but it's kind of like it all reflects itself, but we go sideways to other people in our relationships to understand below and above and how it's or what. Well, one of the things that's helpful to do is to realize there aren't any circles, there aren't any boundaries. In other words, there's no place where the conscious awareness that we are comes to an end. It's not like there is a boundary someplace and conscious awareness, loving presence, God, whatever you want to call it, because what's on the other side of it? That's an impossibility. So it's like the conscious awareness that we are is observes everything. It's not ever engaged in the activity or the thinking, but it observes everything. And one an interesting thing to do is to go, okay, now when you woke up this morning, you recognized yourself as you. <laughs> and when you woke up last week, you recognized your own presence as you. And five years ago, you knew you were you. In other words, all kinds of things have changed, where you live, what you wear, what you eat, what you said, what all may have happened. 
but that background of of completely open, non-judgmental, taking everything in, conscious awareness is what we really are. Right. That's what that's, we really are. That's the I amness of us that's not included in this big drama that's going on. It's the sense of personal self that we think we've invented that's all tangled up in the in the belief in guilt. That makes sense. Um, the, the use of the I am in A Course in Miracles is interesting to me in itself, but also because Neville Goddard also talks about the I am. Are you aware of Neville Goddard's work and do you think there's a connection? Oh, I think uh, the I am presence uh, is noted, you know, for 5,000 years back into Eastern philosophies that know perfect, all of the great teachers, you know, Buddha and Jesus and everybody get it that we're not things and that oneness has never been stripped into pieces. See, it's an interesting exercise to do this. If we, and I've used this example before, and nobody ever pays any attention to this, but it could be enlightening. If I say, I'm going to the grocery store, I'm clear that I know what I'm, that I'm talking about. My body personality is going to somehow get in a car and go to the grocery store. But if I say, I'm noticing that I'm buying too much ice cream at the grocery store, you've got two eyes in that sentence. They aren't the same eye. Oh. I am noticing what this eye is doing. In other words, there's something that is aware and noticing what the body personality that likes ice cream that's going to get in the car and travel. We do that all of the time where we've got two eyes and it never occurs to us to go these can't be the same eye one is the 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 what it is you really are the invisible intangible precious pure innocent presence that is not involved in this drama so to speak it's just aware of anything conscious awareness is as openly aware of bombs being dropped someplace as it is to somebody going to a dance at the country club. In other words, it takes in everything. It Because it's not a thing and it's not a mind, so to speak, there's no judgment inherent. It doesn't say, I'll be aware of some things and not of others. It's aware, period. And so we keep being asked to go, how about if we begin to claim our real capital S selfhood and, and this and, and legitimate powerful teachings, which of course have been around for a long time, will lead us in that direction, especially some of the, the, the religions and so on from the East who had a, from much further back had that awareness of oneness, not as a theory, but as an experience. What's fascinating about Wars and Miracles is it's doing what these Eastern mystical traditions 
uh, do, but it's doing it from a, I suppose you could say a Christian lens. Well, and it's, you might say it's doing it through a Western lens. In other words, the Eastern and the Western minds kind of don't operate the same way. It's like the Eastern mind from what little I know about this, I'm not an expert on this, doesn't clutter itself up with so many words and explanations. It's like somebody from the East might look at something and say, that's a table. The Western mind is likely to say, that's a table and it's made of this kind of wood and it's got this style to it. It's like, it's like there's a whole lot more description and stuff going on. And so this is designed for the Western mind that thinks thinking is important. And of course, this is to undo a lot of what we believe about the importance of thinking. I remember when I worked at IBM, there would be big signs on the wall that would say something like, think. Some of them would just say think, or some would say plan ahead, and the D in at the end of the word ahead would be dropped off. In other words, it's like all of those things that the course would say, how about if we undo a lot of that? So anyway, there's not anything bad or evil. It's just that we've been uh, erroneously programmed. There's not malice afoot about it. And if I would think, because I was always curious about this, well, then how does that happen? How does this programming happen that I don't know about? And I think it's important for your listeners who don't know this to have just this bare little diagram. And that is, so now we're talking at the time and space level, not the big picture metaphysical level. And that is when babies are born, and until we're about three years old, the left brain, which is the thinking mind, is physically present. It's not online. Only the right brain, which is nonverbal, it's feeling, it's instinctive, it's intuitive, because the young of all species have one goal, and that's survival how do I survive? And in the thought, how do I survive is not there. The intuitive beginning to know that person's safe to go toward, this person back away from, this situation. In other words, we're feeling out the waters, but we have no language. Therefore, we have no sense of being a person having an experience all we know is we are the experience we're having in these early years. Almost nobody knows this. <laughs> this is really important information because I'm swimming around in the energy fields of the parents, whatever their belief structures are, whatever's going on with them, and those things I mentioned in the environment of the culture, the religion, the century, the social status. It's like, so I'm creating this kind of mulch, so to speak. When I'm about three years old, the left brain comes online and I'm able to start to think about what's happening in addition to experiencing it. And when I have thought and language, 
out of this experience that was only experience, I start to build an ego. I start to create a story of me. I start to um, inevitably create a notion of what I am and the roots of this story that I invent about myself is in the, those early years of experience. Now, in some cases, and this would be true for all of us, some of the beliefs that get incorporated in this story of me that I'm inventing, um, some of those are positive, some of those are helpful. A lot of them aren't. In other words, I'm picking up from the atmosphere that I'm in, and once it gets translated into words, it would be words like, I'm unworthy, or I'm not deserving, or I can't do anything right, or I'm not important, or I'm not interesting, or people are not available to me, or et cetera, et cetera. So this ego that I build is a mixed bag. But here's the problem. This is the core problem for most people walking the planet is they don't know about this process. They, they don't know that being unworthy or unimportant cannot possibly be true about them. It's a belief, but since it's been there as far as they're concerned from day one, it's wired into the brain as an inevitable truth about them, which now has to be hidden and managed and defended against, and I've got to try to do something about it. So we spend our lives trying to deal with what turns out to be a huge lie about ourselves. Can you see the dilemma that humankind yeah. is in? And so what the course is for, what any valid spiritual practice is going to be for, is to recognize that the people we don't like, you know, that enter our fields over here, and people will say, I don't like being around that person because, listen to the language we use, they make me feel small, or they make me feel unworthy. Well, they don't make us do any such thing, but they are triggering. What we already think about ourselves. Pardon me? What we already think about ourselves. Yes, they are, because no one has instructed us that these things about being small or undeserving or unworthy cannot possibly be true about us, but they are just like if you plant something in certain kind of soil, up through the roots, it's, it's going to incorporate whatever is in the soil. So this story of me that I'm building includes, you might say, some positive things from that early experience. It is inevitably, because this is the raw material for the storyline, is going to include a lot of what's going on with the parents and extended family and the culture you're in and so on and so forth. And the key if we want to live a decent life is to go, instead of avoiding the people that you say make you feel unworthy, if you find yourself believing and feeling upset and believing you're unworthy, 
the healing would be, what if this is not true about me? See, no, almost no one is taken by the hand and led to that step, which could be a healing step. What if this is a big lie? So, what, if, what if this is just old programming, but nobody knows how to, in generically anyway, ask those questions? It seems that what we need to do is a sort of inner gardening on ourselves. Absolutely. That's what all my work is about. It's to take this marvelous material and has all of our video work, all of our, you know, I've created out of 150 blogs and podcasts and everything else. And it's all to keep chipping away at this core belief that I am separate. I'm unworthy. I've got to keep my defenses up because I cannot have anybody discover how really awful I am. And that is the situation of most people on the planet. And it's a total lie. Right. So we've heard plenty about the ego and the state that many of us are in, most of us. But what is the kingdom of God? What is the what? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God would just be another phrase that talks about experiencing the actual um, presence that we are. And I've had maybe a dozen experiences in my life where that has happened. And it is completely impossible to describe that it's way beyond words. All you can say is you never wanted to stop. It is so fabulous. It is so joyful. It is so clear. It is so light-filled. It is just so completely not like daily experience as experienced through the sense of a separate self. That once you've tasted that, it's like you never want it to leave. And it kind of solidifies your determination. I am going to ferret out every bit of guilt that's in the way of this becoming, first of all, everything becoming easier and cleaner and nicer and more suitable and more supportive at the world of time and space level so that I don't have to get distracted trying to fix a bunch of stuff. It's just runs smoothly like a well-oiled machine. And that more and more and more, I can keep dropping things that I find that aren't true about myself or someone else and being determined in that kind of binary situation that I mentioned earlier that we're always either promoting, protecting the ego sense of made up self, or I'm saying, I wanna follow guidance because you might call that the voice of this holy presence, um, conscious awareness that we actually are. It's not like we go, hey, voice, you're, I realize you're out there doing something important. Could you come over here and help me? <laughs> it's like guidance um, is, is built in to the presence that we are this minute. It's like all the guidance, all the help, all the everything that we need to uh, to continue to move forward, all conscious awareness, all knowledge is structured into the presence we are. We just have to go, I want that. I want to listen to that. This is more important to me 
than the care and maintenance of the ego. But, but right. if, you don't, if you don't know that that's here and available and sort of pressing in on us, it's like, let us help you, let us help you. The, the help is all around us, but we will not avail ourselves of it because we don't know what's there. And, and we don't all the protection of the ego is exactly what impedes us. Absolutely. And you see, this is not evil. This is not, oh, people are awful for doing that. We don't know any better. It's like we've been uh, kind of driving down a highway with a sack over your head. It's not going to work out well, not because the world is against us, but you can't see where you're going with a sack over your head. So you were seeking, I suppose you say, spiritually for a long time. And yes. before you came to A Course in Miracles, what were, what, were the key, what were the key spiritual teachings that were of interest to you and how anything I could how put does this my, compare? Anything I could put my hands on. I remember when we moved to the town where I, when I was six years old and then lived there until I went off to college. We went to church at the new church. We belonged to the Episcopal Church. There was a beautiful little church with very more academic people. So this is not a you know, uh, hell and brimstone kind of a thing. And so something very appropriate was being said. And my mind, which obviously I had a six-year-old body, but there was not a six-year-old mind because there never is the mind. And I go, this is not the way it is. This is not true. So somehow I knew that the teachings of any kind that we were being taught about how life is weren't accurate. Now, I didn't know what was, but I knew this wasn't it. Now, I was fortunate in my planning, so to speak, to be born into a metaphysically friendly family, although I grew up in Arkansas, which is not normally where you would, where you would right. find a liberal outlook. But so in my growing up years, there were all anything that was available, the Edgar Cayce stuff, some of the early healing things, the a lot of Eastern philosophy. So by the time I had graduated from high school and was moving on to college, I was very well versed in a lot of this material. And then of course I got into my working life but I was still interested in it around the edges. There was almost nothing you could go to in the way of workshops or anything like that. And then when it was time for me to have kids and I was home more, then I delved back into it and read myself silly for probably 25 years because I thought I was missing information. Oh. No, I was missing an experience. I didn't know that. How could I have known that? I, I read Eastern philosophy and it all seemed intriguing and so on, but I I was obviously unable to connect the dots, but when that Course in Miracles came along, which is an Eastern teaching for the Western world, so to speak, then that's when all of those decades of preparation, so to speak. So for a lot of people, the course is too much or overwhelming, but I had an enormous background in this material before it ever entered my life in the first place. And I've now been at it for 44 years. I'm very old. 
<laughs> I've been at so, this I mean, when you said he spent all that time accumulating the spiritual knowledge, at first I thought, well, it's not about the accumulation of knowledge, it's about experiencing it. But at the same time, you said it prepared you. So it prepared me to know, to recognize a teaching of non-duality when I saw it, even though it was couched in Christian language. And somebody, by the way, said, hey, why is this written in Christian language? And why does it use all that masculine gender, he, it, you know, Holy Spirit, Father, Son? And so Helen inquired, it's like, why is this? And the answer she got was, of all the world's major religions and philosophies and so on, Christianity is most misunderstood of all. In other words, the teaching itself is most misunderstood. So since this has to be written in some kind of language, it's written in that language. And so periodically people write me and are incensed because it doesn't say she and her and how could this be and so on. It's like, well, because in a sense, this is a correction of the Christian language. So it uses Christian terminology, not because it's advocating it or espousing it, because it's part of the healing related to it. Right. Hmm. The, I was fascinated by the logic that I saw when, especially you know, the foundational principles were laid out by Christ. It really laid it out in a logical manner about kind of how we lie to ourselves and the truth. And um, but at the same time, it's got a very strong intuitive side to it. So, yeah, um, what do you think about that? <laughs> Are you talking about the course has an intuitive In side? In the course, to yeah, reading oh, it. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. In other words, let's call the author of this material, and we don't have to go into any further, like, what's the author? Let's just say the author is a wisdom that's beyond us or the wisdom that is us that we don't normally access, that wisdom, it was presenting this in the way that seemed to be most helpful for the Western world. In other words, um, that we could hear. In other words, kind of using language or ideas or something that we could hear. It's also interesting um, that so much of it is written in Shakespearean blank verse and an iambic pentameter. Many of the lessons, you know, it's like, I feel the love of God within me now. In other words, many of those have got the, uh, and so there's a certain musicality to a lot of what's in the text in the workbook because it's got that, um, it has a rhythm, especially starting later on. It makes sense to me that Christ would write like that. Mm -hmm. And also, and, and when we think Christ, we don't want to think a person. We don't, we don't want to think of the personhood of Jesus that, you know, walked around in a body and ate dinner and so on. The, the, the real author, although it uses the word Jesus, the real author is the, the one wisdom 
that we all are and have and is present everywhere. So we don't want to think of the author as being some sort of a big human being. The author is love itself, which is what everything is. And there's no edges to it and there's no divisions in it, so to speak. Yeah. How do you Christians... A lot, this, a lot of this is is beyond what the intellect has an ability to grasp. That's always the, the problem with this and why metaphors and parables and examples and so on are so necessary because we have to point to something that our language simply cannot achieve. Yeah, it's this intuitive right brain grasping has to be done in the process. And this, that, the text and the workbook and going through those processes, that is how. Yes, it's, it, it's an enormously helpful tool when you, because if it says, focus on this two minutes a day or two minutes for five times a day or something like that. In other words, and people go, oh, this is kind of a stupid lesson, I don't wanna do it. It's like, no. What you're literally doing, because it doesn't take but a few seconds for new neural networks in the brain to be formed. I remember watching a PBS program one time where it showed a lot of brain activity and they would they had the camera, I don't know how they did this, where they could look down an electron microscope and it showed how quickly new neural connections are made in the brain that's what this is for. In other words, if we read these things, it's like, you know, um, I, I am beloved. It's like, I, I, am, I am the love that God created me to be. And it says, focus your attention on that. Focus your, don't just say it blindly. It's like, focus your attention on that because guess what? that refocusing of these true things starts to immediately grow new neural networks in your brain. And the whole point is grow new ones to replace the ones that say, I'm an unworthy piece of fill in the blank. In other words, we don't want competing ideas. We want the, I am beloved and safe and everything is here for me to replace, I'm lonely and out of touch and I don't count. So these are affirmations, are they? That, that's, that's kind of how they work. Yeah. They don't say they're affirmations. And there's, there's some <clears throat> explanatory material. Plus, I've recorded all 365 lessons with a lot of extra commentary that people love. Because it makes what that message is even more clear, which is the whole point. So there's a number of different versions of A Course in Miracles. I've got the Circle of Atonement complete and unedited edition here, which honestly, I, I haven't really read as much as I could have. Well, let me, let, let me clarify that because there's some confusion abroad in the land. And there was never intended to be several versions. The version that Bill and Helen got was the version that that 
was published when they got Judy Scotch and her, and her Judy and Bob Scotch Foundation, the Foundation for Inner Peace was given the copyright to this set of material. And that's the way it is for a while. And uh, in the in the editing process, so now we're going to back up before, before this is finalized, in the editing process, and by the way, what I'm going to tell you is not to make anybody wrong. I'm going to just tell you what happened, just from straight from Ken Wapnick and all the people who were there. When Helen and Bill uh, were partway through the editing, they um, took a break. And at that point, they had become friends with Hugh Lynn Casey, Edgar Casey's son, if you know who Edgar Casey is. Yeah. Okay. So in any event, they had, because they were the only, Bill tried to find out, like, is there anybody else doing this weird thing we're doing, you know, getting this transmission and so on. And in the process, they discovered there is a river, which is the book about Edgar Casey, and they decided to be in touch with Hugh Lynn Casey, who was running the ARE, the, the Enlightenment Institute there. So they went down and they gave him a partially edited version as a private gift to him. It's like, just so, you know, to indicate their appreciation and in case he wanted to read it up to that point. Somewhere in all of the process, what was in his private library somehow got into the public library that was there. Okay, so that's what happened there. Now, up in Wisconsin, there's a group that probably would be the closest to what you might call an A Course in Miracles cult. It was centered around a guy who was charismatic and people were selling their houses and coming up and being part of his community and things like that. And they kept um, just deciding they were gonna do whatever they wanted to do with this course, despite the fact that it was copywritten. And in order for them to just do what they wanted to do, they had some, shall we say, scouts out. <laughs> and some of those people, and I'm leaving out big chunks, so because this could go on forever, uh, got hold of that partially edited version uh, down in Virginia Beach, copied it, checked it out, copied it bit by bit by bit. It ultimately turned into one version. Um, another situation, when Ken Wapnick was doing some final um, editing and, and writing his book, Absence from Felicity, and so on and so forth, he said, I think I need to, um, I think I need to copyright, you know, kind of what he was doing. And his wife said, I don't really think that's a good idea, but he did anyway. Well, the same people who were involved in Virginia also checked out the version that was given to the Library of Congress and managed to somehow get it out and copy it. It was the it was the Ur text was what Ken decided that he was going. That's got all of 
Helen's and Bill's personal stuff that was never supposed to be in it. And Ken was using this to write his biography, Absence from Felicity, of Helen. And that's why he said, you know, I'm quoting from this Urtext so much, I should probably copyright it and put it in the Library of Congress. That's just kind of, you know, the standard practice. And that's when his wife didn't think it was a good idea, but he said, it'll be okay. Who would ever guess somebody would come and manage to sneak out the copy of the Urtext to the Course in Miracles and within 24 hours, it was put up online. So right. some of the other versions, and as I say, this is, I know, some, I know people who are involved in some of that. And this is not to make anybody wrong. It's to say there was never intended to be anything but the version because I asked Bill one time about the editing before any question about editing ever came up. He was at my house in my living room. <laughs> I said, tell me about the editing. And he said, and Bill was the most amazing and honorable and probably the most astounding human being I've ever met in my whole life. And he said, nothing but private personal stuff was taken out nothing was taken out of the course that has anything to do with the message of the course. When Bill Thetford co-scribe says nothing important was taken out of here and then people want to go back and put some more stuff in, that's not a crime. But let's be clear from the scribe's point of view, the thing that they published was um, now, now some people have the circle of atonement and, and the guy who put the ur text up on the tape. There are people who like that. In other words, for some people, that's serving a purpose. They like all that background material. They like all the footnotes. They like to be able to study all of that. So since it's happened, it obviously somehow wanted to happen. But the foundation for inner peace version is the one that the actual scribes, Helen and Bill, have their imprimatur on. So if anybody ever asked me, I say, get the one from the Foundation for Inner Peace. That's the original version of the course. Thank you for clarifying. Uh, that really does like lay it out in a clear way. Now I'll tell you a story that's gotta be the strangest non-coincidence of the whole world. Synchronicity. Back in, was it 19 uh, or, or 2015, when it was the 50 year anniversary of the, of the beginning of the scribing of the course. And I was in, I'm not even gonna identify where it is. I was in another state being a speaker at a big um, kind of observance of this. So it was a big all day workshop and so on and so forth. So I was staying with a woman and there were several other people staying at her house as well. And she asked if I would mind having a roommate. It's like, no, not at all. And so it was, you know, a, a nice person and so on. So I discovered somebody at some point in this weekend because the workshop was on a Saturday and then people stayed for Sunday and so on. And, and asked if I knew about the history of the woman who was my 
roommate. And I said, no, he said, that's the person who stole the stuff from the, from the library in Virginia Beach. It's like, I have been sleeping with the thief. <laughs> I don't mean sleeping with, we had twin beds, but I thought of all of the, I don't know, 9 billion people in the world, what is the likelihood that I'm going to have a roommate who's uh, my being who I am in the course community and my roommate is the person who stole it and created another version of it. I mean, I just find that fascinating. Yeah. I, I love when life does things like that. Yes. I have another question. Okay. Um, so... It feels very much like a Bible. Uh, the pages like a, themselves, like a, like a what? Like a Bible. Okay. Or at least this version does. Like the pages are thin, mm-hmm. and it also is written very much in a biblical style, or a, if you know what I mean. And in your opinion, what do you think? Do you think it helps Christians who may be interested in this to find it accessible? I think diff- I think it's great that there are these several versions out here because everybody's going to be drawn to the one intuitively, not intellectually, that's going to be the most helpful one for them. And I know people who love that. In fact, I did a big podcast just yesterday with Emily and Robert Perry at the Circle of Atonement. I did what you and I are doing now. I did exactly the same thing with them. So, As for the Course of Miracles generally being very... Christian in its style. Do you mm-hmm. think that do you think that helps people who are Christian be who are open uh, act, find uh, course and miracles or spirituality or mysticism accessible who might not find uh, new age or Eastern mysticism interesting? I think it would depend upon the background of somebody in uh, the Christian tradition. I doubt that an evangelical Christian would find anything about this appealing. It's too far afield from a kind of a fundamentalist approach to things. But I have great confidence, I've seen it happen, that the course will find its way into the lives of the people who can most benefit from it and not into those who won't. There will be other things that will be helpful stepping stones for other people. So just as with all teachings, it's not even designed for everybody. It's designed for those for whom it's intended. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And and Um, we don't have to worry about how that happens. Life is gonna cause us to intersect with whatever at any given moment is most helpful to us when we really say, help, I really do, you know, want to expand or grow or whatever. Sounds like everything's synchronized. Some of it is maybe as we go through our lives and some of it's like before our lives, we might plan it. It's like I have been, I've had so many experiences that were synchronistic and so is everybody else that it's like there's, I had a really weird experience last March here in my house. 
I woke up really early. It was the 23rd of March. It was just, we were just starting to get into the COVID thing, which I'm not sure that was related to anything, but I got up, it was dark. So I came to the bedroom into my house and was walking down the hallway. And there was a living room over here and there's a dining room. Here. Well, just as I'm getting to the big cutout where my dining room was on the right, there was a lamp that I had left on because periodically I'll just randomly leave lamps on at night. So there was a lamp at the end of a credenza table over there. And so I'm just as I'm walking down the hallway, the thought starts to cross through my mind. Oh, I've got to go turn that light off. Instantly, it turned itself off. I'm 12 feet away. I'm out in the hall and I'm going, that bulb did not just happen to burn out then. <laughs> so I went and dropped my laundry, came through the kitchen through another door, flipped the switch and it came back on. And there was this sense of, it, it, all I can say was a sense of like several beings or something. And the message that came through my mind was, was very jovial. It was very lighthearted. It's like, this is just so you know, we're all, we're all here and everything's just fine. I don't know who we all are, is, <laughs> or was, but um, that sort of thing has happened more than once. And when I was writing Bill's book, there were some really remarkable experiences that seemed to make it like beyond the shadow of a doubt. Bill, Bill and I wrote this book together. He was here. I mean, there were just amazing things. Very, very specific things, not just vague. Just one of the most at the close to the end, and I go, Bill, now how do I really know that you're really here? And he said, a few of these things were sort of at the end of the writing process. There was no place really in the book to properly place them because this was just through his life and death, not what was happening years after he died. So there just kind of wasn't a category. So in any event, I said, how do I absolutely know for sure that you are right here and we're right finishing this book? And you know what the thought that came through my mind was? Ask Judy about the plaid dress. Now that is a very specific statement. There's not anything vague or this could be this or it could mean that. And it was so specific. She, he was talking about Judy Scutch Woodson, head of the Foundation for Inner Peace, who's still alive. And... And I didn't do it for a couple of days because I thought that is so specific that if she writes back and says, no, I don't know anything about a plaid dress, then I would like, what am I going to do about all these other sort of seeming interactions with Bill? Would I throw them all out the window? So finally, I get up the courage and I, and I write her and I said, does a plaid dress mean anything important to you? And she wrote back and she said, it sure does. And she sent the picture because she has a younger sister who was um, nine, nine years younger than she was. So the very first, uh, you know, where the photographer comes and takes a picture, 
is Judy in her plaid dress and her baby sister, who's a year old, and that's their first official photograph. It was always very important to her because that baby sister and her husband died mysteriously in an airplane accident someplace up in the Northeast in a private plane. They never, ever, ever, ever found the plane. Although they know right where, where and when it went down, they could never, ever find it. So this picture of her, and, and she sent the picture. So I thought, Nothing could be more specific than that. If I say, give me a specific sign, can you imagine that anything could be more directly specific? Her answer was yes. And it's like, well, whatever lingering doubt I might have had vanished. What do you think? <laughs> well, um... That sounds like it confirms it. Sounds like a what? It's, it confirms it to me. Y yes, and and there were there were more than that one. As I'm finishing to the very end, and I'm I'm this took this book was very uh, difficult to write because there was so much research, and I you know, I had forty three tapes of interviews with people that needed to be interviewed to create the largest fullest picture of him. And so finally, all the, that's all put together and I'm realizing I'm finished. And so I'm just sort of offhandedly on my computer saying, hey, Bill, what is the name of this book? Because I just using something to, because I hadn't named it yet. And he said, you'll know when you come to the end. I said, well, I am at the end. I probably at that point was two or three pages from the end. I didn't know when it was gonna exactly end, but I knew I was close to the end. And he said, but you're not at the end yet. And I said, well, yes, technically, I'm not at the very, very, very end. And somehow the last sentence, and you, you know, when you write, you never know what's going to come out next exactly. And it says, blah, 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 blah. And never again will we forget to laugh. Bill was the funniest guy in the world. And when I saw the never forget to laugh, it jumped off the page at me and said, that's the title. He was right. After all, it was at the very end. It's in the very last sentence. So is joy important? Oh, of course. For life? Of course, it's the natural attribute of life. In other words, mm. it's what automatically is there when the ego story of me is finally off the landscape, so to speak. And then we can be fully present with what it is we are. It's like an acceptance is built into joy because you're not taking it so seriously and you're not defending stuff. It's just, isn't this so silly? Well, and it's not only that, it's an actual deep, it's, it's deeper because I've had this experience. It's deeper than just thinking things are hilarious or funny or, you know, and when you're with people that you adore being with, this joy is like, it is like staggering in its immensity. And you know what else I discovered? And I won't belabor how I discovered it, but I did in a big auditorium thing I was in, is that in the presence of that real joy, 
judgment becomes impossible. It's not that you just choose not to judge because you're being a nice person. It's like joy overcomes everything. And that ego mind, which is where judgment comes from, is nowhere on the horizon. You can see or hear people doing things that in your with your ego mind, you would judge that as they shouldn't be doing that or whatever. This was a very specific instance at a big Buddhist thing one time. And, but you find that you can't, <laughs> this is not just being nice and not doing it. It's like when your whole presence is filled with this joy, nothing else, it's opposite cannot be present. It's been eclipsed by joy. Uh, so eclipsed. two questions. Is, is joy a miracle and what is a miracle? A miracle, Bill used to define this as that shift in your perception that allows you to experience the love that is in and behind and part of everything. In other words, it allows you to see more than a world of things or people. It's like you're able to literally, just in a case like that where joy makes it impossible. There's, there's no space for judgment to be because joy is all encompassing. It's like you're able to, to, to discern the love in everything. In other words, you could say in everything or behind everything or um, that is the, that, that is the reality of everything. And of course, the more you release guilt and you release guilt and you release guilt because only guilt veils our perception and keeps us from seeing what's right in front of our eyes. That's why the discovery of guilt through relationships is of such critical importance because that's how we, you might say, clean the lens <laughs> so I can see Guilt is there. the veil of forgetting guilt veils love and peace and joy and our birthright and our safety and everything else. It's like all we can see is form and often it's form that's threatening in some way or seems to be lacking in some way or seems to be hurtful in some way. But in any event, so that's why the whole focus is on changing your mind about you, you aren't guilty, you haven't ruined yourself, you are still beloved, you haven't left home, you haven't transgressed. It's like, but because we're so anchored in believing that's true about us, this is just like a big D, it's like we've grown up in a cult with a cult leader, the ego directing, you can't do this, you have to do this, don't dare look outside the wall, be loyal to me or else. And this is like being plucked out of a cult and being necessarily reprogrammed just like people do when they do rescue people from cults. And they have to show them that there's an entirely different way of being or foundational beliefs to adopt, so to speak. So it's kind of like we've, we've been prisoners in a cult. And yeah, the fundamental difference between a cult and this is that this broadens and 
widens the whole experience of life, whereas a cult does the exact opposite. Well, but but see, but getting, but I'm talking about getting out of the cult. In other words, yeah. the, the the parallel is if you've grown up in a cult, like one of those things you know where some guys got 45 wives and he keeps them all bound and so on and so forth. When people are lifted out of that and they discover that there's what you know an entirely different world out here. We're still talking at the time and space level, but it's like what? You mean it's safe to do this and people are nice to you here and you don't have to obey a leader or anything like that? In other words, this is a very expanding, well, this is that same idea only at a much larger, more metaphysical level. That metaphor is, is it's perfect. That, why I don't know about perfect, but it's a very good metaphor to explain it. I, I, and um, so this is why it's healing. This book, it's it's healing. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So is there anything? I think it's just got to be for those who resonate with it. It's a literal lifesaver. Wow. So I feel like we're coming to an end to this episode about now, but is there anything you'd like to add or summarize about A Course of Miracles? the listener well i think an important idea is part of our notion that we're guilt we're guilty is based on the notion that all of our inappropriate words and deeds are just kind of gathering in a larger and larger pile and kind of following along behind us and and reminding us of how awful we are this is not true listen carefully the moment a word or a deed is over it vanishes it's not stored anywhere. It's not like you can go to a library shelf and pick off the, about when I was not nice to my father-in-law at the family picnic. Now, you can, if you choose, which is a very poor choice, you can think about, but if you're thinking about an incident where you were not happy with your behavior, you're not recalling that event, you're reinventing that event. And every time any instance is reinvented, it's altered. It's never the same because today's perspective is, in, is going to continue to alter it. So if you realize that this is an extremely important major core teaching, um, this moment is all there is. And cause and effect is not some kind of a horizontal line, you know, where you're going to experience now because of what happened back then. That's not how it works. Cause and effect is vertical. So every new moment is a clean moment. Nothing's gone wrong in this moment. And if in this moment, I believe something that's more accurate, it's like, I really do deserve to be here exactly as I am. In other words, we allow this programming to take hold in this moment, then my life this moment is going to be better and somehow cleaner and more open and so on and so forth. Nothing from the past can get me. Nothing from an, a future that hasn't happened yet can get me. The only thing that can interfere with the, the loveliness of any given moment 
is one of those beliefs that I'm not worthy, that I'm not good enough, that I'm not okay. So the more in this moment I can claim, I am beloved right now in this moment. I have every right to be here in this moment. So you see, do that right now. It's like in this moment, nothing is going wrong. In this moment, I am pure, I'm clean, I'm good, I'm beloved, nothing gets to interfere with that in this moment. So that if we began to do that in more and more and more moments, you notice, wow, things are getting better and better and better. So that's what the lessons are reading everything is for is, but you see, if you believe that you're at the effect now of something that happened earlier, you've completely missed out on everything. So I must get that this moment is the point of power because this moment is where I get to decide where will I focus my attention. Here in this moment, I'm going to be, I wanna follow my intuition. I wanna be led by love. I wanna be as kind as I can be to myself and everybody else. I wanna drop any crazy notions about myself. I want of that binary choice of ego or intuition, love itself. That's my choice now. And as that becomes more and more and more, my automatic choice, moment after moment after moment, remember nothing can get me in this moment. I'm creating everything new in this moment. And then you go, well, this life is pretty great after all. Well, um, thank you. On that note, I feel like um, we can come to a close. So I hope, listener or viewer, that you enjoyed it as much as me. It's really been clarity. Clarity and, um, yeah, yeah. I, um, I think it definitely brings clarity about Course and Miracles and lays down the core principles of what it's about so thank you for coming on podcast you're very very welcome it's my favorite thing to do it's like if one person can go you mean i really get to start all over again now and life is really here for me then all these things are worth it all right then um on that note listener um have a great day and bye for now